And so today we're going to look at the uh, second half of the first chapter of Revelation. I know that uh, uh, the first uh, the first episode, the first eight verses, took us uh, took us quite a bit of time. And uh, hopefully, as we get to moving through the book, it won't uh, it won't take that much uh, that much time to to go through each verses. I'm hoping this one will be a little quicker, and then chapter two and three should be uh, should be a little quicker. But these are the the things that you need to know to make an informed decision. Uh, I told you at the very beginning, I'm not going to. Um, I'm going to tell you what I think, and I'm going to tell you my conclusion, but I'm also going to tell you how I arrived at it. So you can judge whether that is, uh, whether it's uh, uh, worthy of consideration or not. We'll put it that way. Uh, So today we're going to focus on verses nine through 20, which are the, you know, the rest of the first chapter. And, uh, you know, you're probably going to be happy to know that this hopefully, hopefully it won't be as mentally taxing as the first first lesson was. I can imagine after listening to that, you know, that first part of the chapter, you, you might be a little brain fried. Uh, but you, you probably you probably are getting a feel for the way that we're going to uh, we're going to approach the study of Revelation. I, I take it very seriously. And uh, we've already discussed the reasons why we've talked about how the how it's a uh, really emotional issue and all that. All that. So when we when we come across sections that find their roots in the Old Testament, we're going to go back and we're going to look at those sections so that uh, uh, my hope is that the storyline of the Old Testament and the preaching of the prophets is going to be running through our minds as we see what John wrote. So uh, before we begin, excuse me. I want to clear <clears throat> clear something up uh, that people might be wondering about as we as we continue to look at the way John uses uh, the Old Testament uh, allusions and references in Revelation. Uh, the Revelation is it's it's a prophetic vision given to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. We saw that last week, uh, or we're going to see it this week. Excuse me. Uh, when we look at the text and the allusions and the references to the Old Testament ideas, I don't want you to. I don't intend for you to think of John sitting there at his desk with all the Old Testament books out in front of him saying, you know, ooh, ooh, I want to put this picture right here. Yeah, ooh, and this, let me take some of the Zechariah and let me put it in. That's not the case at all. This was a vision given by God. John is writing down the vision of what he is seeing. Uh, and so the 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 allusions and references to the Old Testament and these things, uh, it's God himself that is connecting the dots with the Old Testament. John is seeing uh, the vision that uh, God gave Christ to give him through through his messenger. And uh, he, he's using John to write down uh, what uh, what his word is to say. Now, you got to understand that all of Scripture is God breathed. And I'm not going to take a lot of time uh, to go through the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy in this in this episode but uh the bible says that all of scriptures god breathed it's theanustas it's uh, uh it's because god is the single author of scripture that the vision john wrote down the vision john saw and wrote down is filled with the same pictures and the same reference references and even some of the same phrases as those same prophets whose visions and prophecies god gave them to write down so we need to get uh, we need to get that straight. Lots of people uh, who deny the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible would say that, uh, you know, John is just referencing what he knows in the Old Testament. And, it, you know, it, it, it may be true that John and certainly his first century readers would have understood these images because, you know, they heard them preached every Lord's Day. 
But John, uh, you know, John didn't just compose a literary work based on the Old Testament. Uh, so when we look at all these things, I don't want you to think that I, John was given a vision and God gave him this vision. Uh, God himself gave it. So uh, God, uh, the way inspiration works, God used men to write it down. Uh, but it doesn't mean that God just took over their bodies and used them in some kind of like a robot or automatic writing. That is not the Christian doctrine of the inspiration of scripture uh, he used these men to write his word but he used their personalities and their writing styles and their vocabulary it wasn't like you know they just sat down at the you know with with quill and piece of papyri and and uh, you know uh, God took over and then they woke up three hours later and had scripture in front of them. that's not the doctrine of the Christian doctrine of, of inspiration and so John is the one writing the book but he is the Bible says in second Peter 121 uh, Peter says no prophecy was ever you know made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God it was it was John writing but God was carrying him along so to speak to write his words that's uh you know we could go into all kind of depth about that the inspiration of scripture but the point i'm trying to make is i don't want you to think john is just some scholar sitting in an ivory tower taking bits and snippets from the old testament and cobbling them together to make this neat little book that he wrote uh he is actually seeing a vision that god gave him and it is god who is connecting the dots with the with the old testament and he's using the apostle john to do it so um Make sure we have that uh, before we go any further in the book. So when we left off last time, we were at verse 8. We did 1 through 8 last uh, last time, chapter 1. Uh, John introduced the book to us, and, uh, you know, by his language, we he basically showed us that uh, he's going to be dealing with the... Um, uh, the fulfillment of God's kingdom plan, you know, that was initially given by by the prophet Daniel. Well, that's where all that we spent a lot of time talking about the phrase that he used in the very first verse that came from Daniel. Uh, he addresses this letter, uh, which is also a prophecy to seven churches in, in Asia Minor. We saw that. We're going to see it again here in just a moment. And he makes sure that his readers know that the one who reads the prophecy, the, the ones who hear the prophecy, and most importantly, the ones who keep the words of the prophecy will be blessed. He ended the prologue of Revelation, that's verses 1 through 8, by giving us Jesus' words, uh, you know, who says the same thing that God the Father said in Isaiah. He said, I'm the first and the last. I'm the, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, so we're going to pick up in verse 9, and John is going to tell uh, us, he's going to tell his audience uh, that you know, he's going to tell us about himself, you know, and it's not uncommon for letters in the first century. You know, today, when you when you write a letter, you're going to put your name, who it's from at the end of the letter, you know, sincerely, whoever. But in the first century, they did it at the beginning. And you can see that all through the New Testament epistles. Paul starts many of his letters, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church at whatever, you know, and so it's not uncommon. You see that all, all through verse nine says, I, John, your brother. And fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's verse 9. So first John identifies himself. He identifies himself as the brother of the believers to whom he's writing. He is the brother of of the brethren of Christ, the the church of Jesus Christ. Now remember he's writing to the church and all of us who are born again are united in Christ. We're adopted in family of God, members of his kingdom. So so John doesn't, 
you know, he doesn't have any t- hesitation calling the believers in these seven churches to whom he's writing. And we saw last week the number seven, how it represents the whole church. Go back and listen to that <clears throat> if you need more uh, clarification on that. But he doesn't mind calling them his his brothers. All of us in Christ share the, the unity of Christ. But look at what else he says. John also ident- identifies himself as a fellow partaker in, in three different things. In the tribulation, <clears throat> in tribulation. Uh, a lot of people would call the the great tribulation, but that he, here he just says he's our he's the fellow partaker in uh, in tribulation in the tribulation. Uh, I guess it does have a definite article on it, doesn't it? Well, it's the tribulation, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the great tribulation and what all the images that come to your mind in a little bit. But he's our fellow partaker in the tribulation in the kingdom and the perseverance of those who are in. Jesus. Now, even as John is writing this letter, it struck me, uh, it struck me that, you know, the Christian church to whom he was writing at the time he was writing was at that moment enduring tribulation. And John himself being, I mean, being exiled to the island of Patmos. And that's, that's also a debated thing, whether he was actually exiled or whether he was just at Patmos. And later church writers tell us that he was exiled. And it, it makes sense because it says he was exiled or he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. But, um, he is, he is proof. That the church at that moment, the church of Jesus Christ, those who were believers, disciples, those who were preaching in his name, were suffering uh, persecution right off the bat. We're forced to the conclusion that in this life, Christians do indeed go through tribulation and persecution. Uh, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but uh, all these folks run around preaching that God wants you to be healthy and happy and rich, and it's your own lack of faith that's keeping you from it. Uh, just, just false teachers. I mean, you flush it. But uh, it's just not true. It's not true today. It wasn't true. It certainly wasn't true in the life of Jesus or the lives of his apostles, the early Christians. Just, you know, you take a, a cursory walk through the book of Acts and it's persecution and tribulation everywhere. Uh, you know, so you just see it all over the place. But uh, he also in the midst of this tribulation, though, he also wants to, to to make sure that he is he's telling them that I am your fellow partaker in tribulation, but I'm also your fellow partaker in in the kingdom now right now god's kingdom is is moving forward it's 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 here we talked about that a little last week where we said jesus said the kingdom's at hand he said repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom's the kingdom's right here there's a sense of already it's already started it's here and there's a sense that in the future it's going to be consummated and perfected but right now god's kingdom is moving forward and we believers are part of what god is doing it's it's really common today to look at the world and to and you know all the wickedness and we see everything and and think that God's kingdom is somehow declining in the world and and to be honest you can make a really good case for the decline of of uh, of God's kingdom in America and Europe uh, but the reality is that Jesus said he'd build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it even today you know there are people coming to know Christ in in record numbers and in countries around the world and and uh, you know but but even without looking at statistics and things like that you know if we just have a basic knowledge of of Christian history, we can we can see the growth of God's kingdom. Uh, I mean, it started with twelve guys. I mean, it started with twelve guys, and today they're born again believers all around the world. I mean, in the first century, Christians were being fed to the lions. They were uh, Nero used them as human torches to light the way to the to the Colosseum. 
you know, at night. So uh, you might be saying, yeah, but but there's just so much rampant evil today. It's nothing like it was back in, you know, 1950s America. And, and that's true. Of course, it's declined dramatically from the 50s or the 40s or the 50s or whatever. But if you look back through history, you will, I mean, you'll see more depravity, sexual deviancy, uh, things that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up in Roman society, in uh, the, the Greek cultural context, the, the context in which John was writing. You'll see more of that in that society than even you do today. Uh, I'll spare you all the gory details, but we could trace history just in this century and show some of the greatest evils mankind has ever uh, have known been committed. And, and I say all that to say this, John, in the midst of this persecution, uh, as he was exiled to Patmos and Christians were increasingly being marginalized and caused to suffer, uh, and we're going to see him instructing them about suffering in chapter 2 and 3 of the letters to the churches. Even then, John could say, hey, guys, I am a fellow partaker with you in the kingdom of God. Today, even with all the bad you see going on, even if if tribulation smacking you in the face over and over again, if you have been born again, you are part of the powerful kingdom of God that will be victorious, will never be defeated. As long as the earth is spinning, God will have his people. God is in complete sovereign control. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he said all power and authority in heaven and on earth is given to me Uh, and so we're partakers we're partakers with john in the tribulation of this world we're partakers also in the kingdom of god and john also says that he is a fellow partaker in the perseverance of jesus christ and perseverance is it's talking about endurance it's talking about uh, enduring these trials enduring these hardships we're we're enduring trials in this world knowing that god is victorious and we will see in this letter in in revelation over and over again that even when things are at their worst God is in control. That is the message to almost all of the churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. The one who overcomes, the one who endures, the one who conquers, the one who holds steadfast is what he means to say. To him, I'm going to give crown of life, eat of the tree of life. We'll see all those things as we get to the letters. The lamb the, the, the lamb is on the throne. You know, We're going to see that in chapter 4 and 5. The lamb is on the throne, and everything that comes into the believer's life passes through the hands of God himself. He works all things for good to those who love him and those who are called according to the to his purpose. That's the overarching message uh, of the revelation. It's not just to see some science fiction picture of of dragons and, and demons and all that kind of mess. It's it's to show you that the lamb is on the throne even right now as all this is going on. The lamb is on the throne. Now, if you don't understand how God uses or allows evil, you know, things in the world, uh, you know, I can point you to a 42 or 43 part exposition that I did on on the book of Job uh, MP3s. You can it's on iTunes. You can find it there or at jasonvelada.com. But we can't miss the last part of what John says here. He is a partaker in the perseverance of Jesus Christ as believers were called. And we're also commanded to persevere 
through trial and to trust God in the midst of whatever the world throws at us to not turn and serve the world, but to turn, but to stay steadfast and, and, and turn Christ and turn and serve Christ. Excuse me. And we will see that repeatedly through revelation, especially in the letters to the churches called to endure, called to endure. We're called to hold fast. And the same author that wrote revelation wrote the book of first John. He shows us that persevering in the faith is an evidence that we have been born by the spirit of God. Uh, so John, he, he says all that. Then he says he's a, well, he says he's a fellow partaker of tribulation of the kingdom and the perseverance of Jesus Christ. He's a partaker with us in that. He's a partaker with the first century churches he was writing in that. And then he tells us where he's at. He's on the island of Patmos because of the word of God, testimony of Jesus Christ. I've already said, you know, John was was most likely exiled to the island of Pat, Patmos. You know, I believe that's most likely the case. But like I said, in the interest of full disclosure, the text doesn't actually say that. We know that from you know, external sources, church tradition, those kind of things. And we could spend time talking about Patmos, you know, it, whether it was a Roman penal colony or, or, or whatever. And there's lots of debate about that as well. But I think that's going to sidetrack us from what John's trying to say. He's, he, he then says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet trumpet. Literally, it says I became in spirit. Now, again, there's been no end of discussion about what it means that John became in spirit. Does it mean that he fell into a Holy Ghost trance or some kind of altered consciousness? Uh, you know, what it most definitely doesn't mean that he felt really good. You know, some people say that they'll use that phrase. They'll say, boy, I was in the spirit yesterday. And it just means, you know, they had a good time or had some emotional ecstatic experience or whatever. Uh, that's, that's definitely not what John is saying. Um, now was it a trance like state? You know, we see something akin to that, that Peter, uh, experienced on the rooftop in Acts chapter 10, where God showed him the sheet with the animals. It very well could be. It's very, very possible. But more importantly for our discussion, this is a common way for a prophet of God uh, to show that he's receiving divine revelation. Uh, I'm not discounting the fact that John could very well have been overcome by the spirit or or put into a altered state where God spoke to him directly, you know, when he began to see the vision. You know, in all probability he did have an experience of some kind. But the phrase of being in spirit as God spoke to him, uh it's used um, for instance, it's used in Matthew chapter 22 verses 43 and 44 when it's Jesus speaking in that text and he's he's talking about David writing in Psalm 110. So the text is Matthew 22 verse 43 through 44 and Jesus is is talking about what David wrote in Psalm 110 and Jesus says then how does David in the spirit call him Lord saying the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand and he, he shows that David uh, in the spirit was writing Psalm 110 he was receiving uh, revelation from God David uh, wrote Psalm 110 in the spirit basically is what Jesus is saying he was speaking in the spirit meaning he was prophetically speaking the words of God and you can see the same thing 
in numbers chapter 11 verse 25 uh, and i hope you're writing all these down check out my numbers i've been known to misquote verses uh, that when god took the spirit who rested upon moses you know he put that spirit on the 70 elders of israel and then they prophesied they they spoke the words of god and so you you can see it all through scripture but i think the greatest correlation with john says about being in the spirit uh, it's going to be found in the prophecy of ezekiel uh, twice in Ezekiel, he says that the spirit entered him and stood him on his feet. And then he heard what God was saying. That happens in Ezekiel chapter two, verse two. And then it happens again as Ezekiel receives the vision from God in Ezekiel chapter three, verse 24. Uh, in fact, Ezekiel says uh, six times in his in his book that uh, the spirit, the spirit lifted him up in one way or another. You know, um, those uh, those texts are probably in the outline but it's in chapter two chapter three uh three times in chapter three chapter 11 of ezekiel chapter 45 43 in ezekiel so i know that's just throwing a lot of numbers at you and just throwing out numbers doesn't really mean a lot to you but uh you can get the outline and look those up if you want but the point of what the point of what i'm trying to tell you is so is that john is saying here uh, it lets us know right up front that what he is about to relate is god's word he is a prophet in the same vein as Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, as he is writing these inspired words of God, just like the apostles uh, of Christ did, you know, when they penned, penned scripture. He, his being in spirit, his being in the spirit is, uh, is an expression of his authority to give us God's word. It, it's used over and over again as the prophets received the word from God and then spoke it or wrote it to uh, the people of God. And now I'm open to the idea that it all also denotes you know a tangible experience to of some kind you know i don't really see how john could see all these things without some kind of of experience but we got to keep ourselves from thinking that you know god just uh, took him over and had him doing some kind of automatic writing thing that that's definitely out that's not the that's not the uh, the doctrine of inspiration it's not how scripture came came to be um and so <clears throat> John said he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And once again, with a lot of debate on what it means, uh, the Lord's day, we're going to get past this introductory part where, you know, so many people are just wondering what this means and debates and things rage about this. We're going to get past all this, but these things are necessary for you to hear as, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're going through these things. And so John tells us, um, John tells us he was in the spirit, uh, but he was in the spirit on the uh, on the Lord's day. Now, uh, you know, the phrase that's used here, uh, some people think refers to the the eschatological day of the Lord prophesied in the Old Testament. You know, remember what eschatological means? You know, it's the end times day of the Lord Uh, in in the Old Testament. uh, It deals with the the end times. It's going to be a day of the Lord when final judgment's going to come. And it it's the close of history. And and many of the Old Testament and New Testament writers talk about the day of the Lord, you know, coming like a thief in the night 
or the day of the Lord coming uh, in, you know, the destruction that comes with it. You can see that in Joel talks about the day of the Lord. And, and now now John is going to show us lots of pictures that deal with judgment and fulfillments of Old Testament prophets regarding the last days. But there's a problem with the view that right here he's talking about the day of the Lord when he says the Lord's day. Uh, the word kuriake is never used of an end time day of the Lord in the Old or the New Testament. It's a different phrase that's used. So most likely, John just means Sunday. Uh, the phrase for the Lord's Day is used of the Christian Sunday worship in writings that we have, you know, from the second century, uh, from the second century on. So John is probably just talking about Sunday, which was the day the early Christians worshipped uh, because of the resurrection. Now you can see uh, pictures of that in Paul when you know First Corinthians uh, chapter sixteen, I believe, the first three or four verses. You know, when you gather on the first day of the week to take the collection that's going to, you know, that kind of thing. You can see the first day of the week imagery. But uh, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And the first thing that he experiences is a sound. He tells us that he hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet. The sound of a trumpet was heard uh, as God prepared to speak to Moses and uh, and give the, the covenant law to his people at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19.16, it says, So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunders and lightnings, flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And then in verse 19 of Exodus 19, it says, when the, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And so the the voice of a trumpet, you know, you you see that as as uh, manifesting the presence of God in the Old Testament. And uh, then on on top of the voice, uh John is told to write down the things that he sees and hears in a book. Uh in the 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 next verse in Revelation, uh, I believe it's verse 11. I don't have the verses in front of me. It says the voice said, "Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Many of the Old Testament prophets were also commanded to write down the words that God gave them. Now, I'm not going to read all the verses, but Moses is told to write down God's word in a book in Exodus 17:14. Isaiah is told the same thing in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1, and Isaiah 30, verse 8. Jeremiah is told to write down what he, what he, what God's word in Jeremiah 36, 1 and 2. Uh, and Habakkuk is told to write down you know, God's word in, in chapter two, Habakkuk two, verse two. And then of course you already know we got Daniel chapter twelve, verse four, which we quoted last time, uh, which he says, write down and seal the book until the until the latter days. Uh, so what we have here is you have a very standard precedent for seeing uh God that what God often told his prophets uh, he told them to write down the words that he's given them in the book. But even more important is that all those verses that I just mentioned, every one where God told them to write down what I'm telling you, they were all judgment oracles, every single one. And so they were introductions of God's judgment upon his people. So what we have here now, I, I can tell you a, a you know, make a, a big application about the voice like a trumpet and how powerful and all that he is. But I, I think what we have here 
is we don't just have a neat description of a trumpet sounding, you know, voice that gives orders from God. We have a pattern for the prophets of the Old Testament. John is here being commissioned by the Lord himself in the pattern of the Old Testament prophets to bring forth his oracle of judgment. And, of course, we're going to see how this judgment plays out in the rest of the book of Revelation. But already the reader begins understanding what to expect. We have here a divinely inspired oracle of God given through his commissioned prophet, the Apostle John. And we've we've already talked about why these specific seven churches are mentioned in the previous lesson. And, And there we talked about the number seven and, you know, the fact that these were seven real churches to whom John wrote. And there's application uh, for what John writes to the church as a whole, you know, if you need more information on that, uh, go back and listen to the prologue verses, you know, one through eight. So the rest of the chapter, though, verses 12 through 20, we're going to see again uh, a familiarity with the kind of visions the Old Testament prophets received. We're going to see Jesus Christ described. Uh, we're going to first of all, we're going to be told what John sees, the prophet sees, and then we're going to get, you know, John's response. And then we're going to get the interpretation of the vision. And that's something fortunate here in the first chapter of, uh, of Revelation. We don't have to we don't have to worry about the interpretation of the vision. It's going to be given to us specifically. So given all this, I don't think that there can be any doubt that John's introduction to Revelation is the relating of his. It's the relating of his commissioning as a prophet. He is writing these things, and it accords with every prophet of the Old Testament who was commissioned to write God's oracles to God's people. And so we're seeing the same thing with John here. And we're about to be introduced to the one who who commissioned John. Now, when you think of Jesus, what picture comes into your mind? You know, is it is it usually that that blue eyed white guy, you know, that's uh, in the in picture frame in everybody's grandmother's house? You know, I remember spending the night at my grandmother's house and she had a picture of Jesus in the room I slept in. It, it always freaked me out. It was it's that same picture you've seen where Jesus is kind of turned sideways and there's like a little a little i don't know what you call it like a little glow ring or something behind his head or anyway uh you know but what did he look like you know did jesus have long hair did he have short hair i mean you've all seen the jesus movie you've seen the passion of the christ or whatever else is is that really what he looked like uh well well john's going to describe what he sees when he is given a vision of the Christ. And it's nothing like you and I picture Jesus being, Uh, you know, and frankly, I think that's a good thing. The things that the things that are most familiar to us are usually the things that we take for granted the most. So John is going to show us a picture of Jesus that you and I don't expect. Now, before we look at what he sees, let me make let me make two clarifications. First, just like always, we're going to see that John's images come from the Old Testament. Uh, that's something you're probably getting used to by now, and that's a good thing. Uh, the second thing is uh, something we're going to see as we go deeper and deeper into the visions of Revelation. John is going to describe what he sees, and what he sees has a deep and abiding meaning you know, for all the church in every age. But if we start reading, you know, if we start out reading the book of Revelation in a literalistic sense, we're going to miss the point right out of the gate. Uh, John's going to describe Jesus' appearance as having, you know, eyes of fire and, and feet of glowing bronze and white hair and stars in his hand. And if you take John's vision here as a physical description of what Jesus looks like, 
then you're going to have a very scary, science fiction-y, out-of-this-world-looking Jesus. Uh, Just like all the prophetic literature in Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, we need to understand what John's vision means rather than just trying to draw a picture of what John sees. Um, The point is not to tell us what Jesus looks like. The point is to tell us what Jesus is like. Uh, I hope that makes sense. It's it's confusing to so many. Uh, you know, we're going to practice this throughout the throughout the revelation. I, I heard one preacher say, uh, he said it this way, and I, I don't know if it was overly helpful, but it was very memorable. It stuck out to me. He says, John doesn't mean what he says. He means what he means, you know. And so what we're going to see is not a picture of what Jesus looks like, but a picture picture of what Jesus is like uh, let me give you an example let's read verse 12 and verse 13 revelation chapter 1 it says then i turn okay remember john just heard the vo- voice of the trumpet it says write down what you see in the book verse 12 says then i turn to see the voice that was speaking with me and whose voice it was and having i added that part that wasn't in the bible and having turned i saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girdled across his chest with a golden sash. You know, some translations may say a golden belt around his waist. Um, so let's take each one of these symbols and take them apart and see what they mean. And I'm going to tell you what they mean from an Old Testament perspective. And I'm going to give you it, it, it may seem like drudgery to go through each one of these things. And, you know, it may seem like it's taken a lot of time. And just tell me what it means and move on. You got enough people doing that with Revelation. If you want to go listen to one of them, you know, I mean, there's some good people doing it, too. So if that's what you want, then this probably is not for you. I'm going to take each one of these symbols and I'm going to show you how. I arrive at my conclusion, and we're going to use that as a model to move forward. Um, he says, I turned, and what I saw was seven golden lampstands. We kind of touched on this last week. But throughout the Bible, the picture of a lampstand with seven lamps is a picture of God's people in Israel. You've probably seen it before. It's still it's still a symbol for God's people. Uh, well, I say God's people. It's still the symbol for Israel, the national Israel today. Uh, it's a menorah. Jewish writings have always seen this seven-lamped menorah as representative of Israel. It's one lampstand with seven branches, so to speak, with lamps on each branch. Uh, the menorah, you know, it's it's the symbol for, for Israel. And it, it was, Moses was told to make this as part of the tabernacle, this menorah, this, this seven-branched lampstand. In Exodus 25, verse 31 through 32, it says, God's telling Moses, Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups and bulbs, which are the lamps, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Uh, uh, six branches shall go out from its, its sides, three branches of the lampstand from one side and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. So what you see is a lampstand, uh, one lampstand going up the middle and then three branches coming off to the left, three branches coming off to the right. Seven branched lamp lampstand is the symbol of Israel. Moses was told to make it in the uh, tabernacle. Uh, it's pictured again in numbers chapter eight verses uh, one through four. Uh, the seven branched lampstand, the menorah is it's the symbol for Israel. It stood in the tabernacle that Moses built. But here that John sees, he doesn't say 
I saw a a lampstand with seven branches. He says I saw uh, I saw seven separate golden lampstands. I saw seven lampstands, and this is one of those symbols that we you know we don't really have to interpret for ourselves because uh, the Holy Spirit inspired text interprets the vision for us. If you just skip down and look at verse twenty, the last verse in this chapter, uh, after John asks what the vision means, and we're told by the messenger, we're told that these seven lampstands are the seven churches to whom he's writing. They're the the seven churches which represent the church as a whole. You know, we talked about that last week. I'm not going all back through the number seven. Uh, So understand here that John sees the same image as, you know, the picture of Moses' lampstand in the tabernacle, but it's it's different now. The lamps are not connected by a single lampstand anymore. Uh, The people of God are no longer connected by... Uh, a single ethnicity or nationality. So how are they connected? How are the people unified? They're unified in the fact that the son of man walks among them. He is in their midst. They're unified in him. Jesus Christ is the, the one lampstand that unites the seven lamps, which, uh, which verse 20 tells us are the, the seven churches. So if you were, if you were, um, if you were crouched in the old Testament, uh, symbols uh seven seven lampstands would pop out in your mind i mean even today if you uh, uh for an israeli or a person that uh, is is all about the the jewish nation or whatever that image of a menorah is going to it's going to jump out at you like an, an elephant and a donkey would here in america you're, you're going to know exactly what he's saying and john sees the these the seven lampstand but the difference is it's seven individual lampstand and lampstands and jesus tells us that these seven lampstands represent the seven churches and so there's a there's a, a similarity there's a continuity with the people of god but there's also a difference now there's a difference now because they're united as they always were but now they're united by the son of man by jesus christ who walks in the midst of those lampstands so remembering what we said about symbolism revelation all the prophetic literature uh let's look at john's description of this son of man who walks among the lampstands uh we're going to see we're going to see Jesus here uh the one who is speaking to John uh he he is the messiah that's prophesied in the old testament he's the long awaited king of kings the lord of lords he's the judge the priest the the king of the church um i say he's the priest because the old testament priests tended to the lampstands in the tabernacle that was that was their job and so as christ is seen here uh, moving in the midst of the lampstands he's he's tending to his church and we're going to see that in the letters uh, the description John gives us of Jesus here, though, it blends images of God, uh, the Messiah, the ruler, the ancient of days, the Old Testament angel of the Lord. It blends all these images together to give us this picture of who it is that we worship, who it is that we are are, are trusting in. Uh, so first, let's look at him before we just get way too far afield. Let's look at him as the son of man. Uh it says, uh, let me go back and read that verse. Verse 12 says, I turn and I 
to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, right in the middle, I saw, in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. And we talked a little bit about this last week. The son of man comes from Daniel chapter 7. We've already seen that before. Uh, Let me just read it again to you. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel sees the vision uh, of the son of man. Daniel says in verse 13, chapter 7, verse 13, he says, I kept looking in the night vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. One like a son of man was coming. Same phrase John uses. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language, every tongue, might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not pass be destroyed. So when John says, I saw one like a son of man, immediately this picture of the son of man in Daniel, the Messiah, the ruler, the, the, the one with the everlasting kingdom, the dominion, it, it, it pops into your mind. He's, he's been given the kingdom and now rules in authority of the ancient of days. He's the son of man. Uh, this is, this would not have been lost on any person, uh, that was steeped in the old Testament in, uh, in, uh, in the first century, and I can prove it uh, because in, in Matthew chapter 26 at Jesus's trial, Jesus tells Caiaphas this. Caiaphas is questioning Jesus. The high priest Caiaphas asks him, uh, you know, are you the Messiah? You know, at his trial. And in uh, Matthew 26, I think it's verse 64, 65, right in there somewhere. Uh, it, it says, but Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And this is what Jesus said to him. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the priest, Caiaphas, he knew exactly, the people knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Because when they heard that, the next verse says, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses behold you have now heard the blasphemy so he he knew what when jesus said you're going to see the son of man seated on the right hand of power and you're going to see the son of man coming in the in the clouds of heaven he knew exactly what jesus was talking about and the people who heard john john's letter the revelation read when he says i saw when i turned and i saw Among those seven lampstands, one like a son of man, they would have known immediately what he was talking about. This is the one Daniel prophesied about. This is the one Daniel said was coming. This is the king, the one who has authority, the one who came to the ancient of days and was given a kingdom. They would have known. They would have known immediately. So uh, I I get a picture. uh, It's just amazing to me. I don't know if it's as exciting to you as it is to me, but I get an image of people gasping, you know, with their hand over the mouth going, there he is. It's him. This is this. This is the one that we heard of. This is the one that the one that's coming. This is the one that that is going to bring the kingdom and bring the you know i I just get a picture of of the awe and wonder of uh of what this meant to the people who first read it so let's take each element of john's description and let's look at what john is trying to tell us and i've said this before but i'm going to say it again i'm not going to go through and give you some kind of you know his hair was white like wool that means he was very wise you know okay it might it might and there's pictures of 
white hair in the Old Testament denoting wisdom. I'm not denying any of that. What I want to show you is what John is trying to say. Let's not miss the forest because we're looking at the trees. Uh, he is combining uh, many different Old Testament pictures to show us this king of kings who is walking uh, among the lampstands. So let me just read verse 13 through 16 of Revelation. Uh, let me just read it all once, give you all the descriptions of Christ, and then we're going to go back and look at what John's showing us. Verse 13 says, In the middle of the lampstands, uh, we've already read it a bunch, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Some translations will say golden belt. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burn, burnished bronze. Uh, if I were translating, I would have... Uh, it, it, it has the image of being glowing bronze. His feet were like burnished bronze, glowing bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. Uh, and his voice was like the sound of many waters in his right hand. He held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, uh, that's a pretty scary picture, you know, if you're going to take that in a little literalistic sense. Uh, so let's take these descriptions one at a time. Uh, we're going to I'm going to try to move quickly so I don't just bore you to death with all this. But uh, we already talked about the son of man. Now, let's look at the robe that comes down to his feet. Uh, uh, although it's not really apparent in the English text, uh, a robe reaching to the feet. The Greek word is uh, potty race. It's uh, it's translated as. Uh, simply the robe in Exodus 25 verse 7 Exodus 28 verse 4 Exodus 29 verse 5 Exodus 35 verse 9 did you notice all those exoduses 25 verse 7 uh, 28 verse 4 29 verse 5 35 verse 9 all those in Exodus point to the priest and his the description of his robe this is not just any robe it's a robe that comes down to your feet and you also see the same word used for the robe that is given in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 5 each one of these texts is talking about a priestly robe in Exodus it's describing the making of the robes for the priests in the tabernacle and in in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 5 uh, that's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible uh, what it is is Zechariah is seeing a vision of God God reestablishing the priesthood after the exile. And when he when he does, he's commissioning Joshua. It's not the Joshua of the book of Joshua, but this is the Joshua that returned with Zerubbabel and the people and they're rebuilding the city. He commissioned Joshua as the new high priest over Israel. And he, he, he puts this robe reaching to his feet on him. So each time you see this word about the robe reaching to his feet, it's not just, hey, look at the cool robe Jesus got on. It's denoting his priestly role uh, as he moves among the churches. He is the caretaker. He is the mediator. He is the interceder uh, between the God's people and, and God himself. He is the one who uh, fulfills that high priest function. You see that all through the book of Hebrews. So you have a picture of the Lord Jesus as divine Messiah of Daniel, the one with 
king, authority, given a kingdom. He's wearing a robe of the high priest, and the golden sash uh, comes from Daniel as well. It comes from Daniel chapter 10. It's another description of uh, this Messiah, this Son of Man. Let me just read the text in Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 through 11, because what we're going to see here, we're going to see multiple elements in John's description of Jesus from there. It reads, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, this is Daniel chapter 10. I'm starting in verse 5. Uh, I, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold. The belt of gold. There it is. The sash of pure gold of, of Uphaz. His Verse 6 says, his body was like beryl. That's a stone. His face had the appearance of lightning. Sound familiar? His eyes were like flaming torches. Sound familiar? John's description. His arms and his feet were like the gleam of polished bronze. Sound familiar? Same thing. And then here you go in verse 6, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Many waters. The sound of his voice was the sound of many waters. So the hair of his head was white. This also comes from Daniel, but this is a picture of who Daniel calls the ancient of days. Remember when we, we just now read Daniel 7, verse 13, 14, where it says the son of man came to the ancient of days on the clouds. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, the same chapter, in verse 9, he describes the ancient of days. He says in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 7, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow. We saw that in John and the hair of his head like pure wool. So all these descriptions that we see, the flaming uh, fire and the, the, the golden bronze, uh, glowing bronze feet, you know, they could they could show us things about Christ, his strength, his wisdom, his, and they probably do. I'm not discounting that, and I'm not making light of any uh, of those interpretations. But uh, on the face of it, if you back up and look at the picture, he cop, John has taken, uh, John is seeing uh, the vision of all of these elements of the Old Testament prophecies being put together in one person in Jesus. It has he has the hair uh, that that uh, speaks of the ancient of days. He has the eyes uh, of a flaming fire and the, the feet of bronze that that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 10 of the son of man, the Messiah, the conqueror who would come. He has the uh, you know, he is the son of man uh, that uh, Daniel saw in chapter seven. And so oh, over and over again, the Old Testament pictures just can't be missed. Uh, not only is Jesus the divine Messiah, the Son of Man who ascends to the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom and dominion, but he's also described in appearance like the Ancient of Days himself. What we're seeing here is Jesus Christ, the God-man with divine power and authority, ruling and judging in the midst of the churches. Uh, I already told you about the, the eyes of flaming fire and, and, and all that comes from Daniel chapter chapter 10 verse 5 and 6 the voice of many waters we saw the voice with the words like a tumult in daniel chapter 10 verse 6 but uh, that description also comes from ezekiel 43 ezekiel 43 verse 2 uh, he's describing the glory of the lord and and it says in ezekiel 43 verse 2 it says and behold the glory of god the glory of the god of israel was coming from the way of the east and his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory so he 
He, he's putting together all these Old Testament pictures. Jesus is the glory of God himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of Daniel's uh, conqueror, his Messiah, his, his son of man who received a kingdom and authority. Uh, Jesus is the culmination of all of these things. He's saying, I turned, one told me to write down what I saw in a book. And when I turned, I saw the picture of everything that the Old Testament prophets had pointed to. In the work and the person of Jesus Christ, and he was walking, ministering, judging, and ruling in the midst of the seven churches. Verse 16 in Revelation chapter 1 says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Uh, the seven stars are going to be explained to us at the end of the chapter. Uh, he says that they are the messengers or the angels. It's the same word. Angelos is, uh, it can mean messenger. It can mean divine messenger, angel, or it can mean human messenger. So um, it, it, they are described as the the messengers, the angels of the seven churches. Now, we see here that uh, the Son of Man is in control and holds the churches in his hand. Uh, I don't really think you need me to explain the significance of the sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. If you know your New Testament, you'll, you'll know well, you're well aware of the fact that the, the Word of God is sharper than two-edged sword. So, of course, it's coming out of his mouth. Uh, so, in Revelation 1, uh, verses 13 through 16, we see in these pictures uh, uh, a picture of Jesus as the fulfillment of all the prophets spoke uh, concerning Jesus, concerning God as king, judge, priest, Messiah, the one promise from the Old Testament. Uh, those steeped in the prophets would recognize all these symbols. that they, These aren't just fanciful visions that tell us how strong he is and how all-knowing he is. You know, They're direct fulfillments of who this end-time judge and deliverer would be. The end of the age when this judge and Messiah would come to set all things right has dawned. That's what John's telling them. The fulfillment of all these things is found in the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, when you look at these things, you get a, you get a scary kind of picture. Um, this isn't the good-looking blue-eyed Jesus that you see in the photos. You know, uh, This Jesus is meant to make you a little uneasy. Uh, if you look through your Bible, whenever a human stood before the radiant glory or holiness of God, uh, they were terrified. You know, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, were, the, the, Jesus was transfigured. The disciples were afraid. Uh, when Jesus calmed the storm, uh, that is a, one of the most profound texts in the Bible. When the, the disciples were afraid of the storm, so they go wake Jesus up. Jesus says, peace be still. The storm calms down, and it, they were more afraid afterward than they were before. They said, who is this, who is this that can command the wind and the seas? Uh, when Isaiah stood in the presence of God uh, at his commissioning as a prophet, Isaiah chapter six, he said, I'm undone. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm coming apart at the scene. Woe unto me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, Daniel, the same thing. We, we just read Daniel chapter 10 where he saw the vision of this Messiah. It says uh, in Daniel chapter 10 that when he saw this vision, he fell down before the son of man. Uh, Jesus is Jesus is kind to sinners and he is full of grace and truth. But we, we got to always understand that although Jesus humbled himself and came to earth, meek and mild, lowly persecuted, he is the righteous judge, the glory of God, the to stand before this Jesus that John sees the son of man come in power and glory. Um, that's that's going to terrify the sinner down to the core of his being. Lots of people, lots of people see Jesus as their bud, you know, he's their homeboy. 
you know, he understands, you know, he understands we, we all make mistakes and sin isn't so bad. And Jesus is just, you know, he's all love and peace. And, and, you know, he's the guy whose shoulder we can cry on. He's the hippie flower power of Jesus, you know, who he's just okay with all this. Now, uh, don't get me wrong. He is love and he, he does call us freely to come to him and find rest. But understand that he's righteous and powerful. And we will see throughout the book of Revelation that he is the divine warrior who has donned the holy armor to do battle, to do battle. He's coming to do battle. He is not to be taken for granted or marginalized. He he doesn't compromise his holiness. And you better believe that when he appears or when you stand before him, either one, you will know that he is truly king of kings, wielding power and authority. John clearly gets that message because in verse 17, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Now, remember, John actually walked with Jesus. He was one of the disciples. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, that's what it says in, in, his, in his gospel. John reclined on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He was, he was well acquainted with Jesus, even though it had been a long time since Jesus had ascended to heaven. You know, uh, I doubt that he forgot, you know, about Jesus, what he looked like or whatever. But when 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 John sees the vision of Jesus, the Son of Man, he is overcome and falls down in terror. He Notice John's not bowing down to worship. He isn't showing reverent, reverence and honor or all that. He falls down like a dead man. And in a moment, Jesus is going to put his right hand upon him and say, stop being afraid. Uh, he is overcome by the power and majesty, the utter holiness and power that's that's before him. Interestingly enough, the the this like I said, this is the same reaction that Daniel has in Daniel chapter eight and Daniel chapter ten. Uh, you know, they fall down before him just in terror and fear because of the the glory and the holiness of of the God that stands before him. Uh, you know, man may not fear God while he's. You know, in sin here on earth, but there's going to come a day uh, when all men will see the Holy Son of God face to face, and the arrogance of men's hearts is going to fly. It's going to fly from them like a whirlwind. Uh, I don't even have the words to explain it. But just like Daniel chapter 8 and 10, John is told by the Son of Man himself to stop being afraid. And, and to rise to his feet. Second part of verse 17 and, and then verse 18 says, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Literally, don't be being afraid. Stop being afraid. I am the first and the last. That's what Jesus says. And the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Uh, some translations say hell, but the word is word is Hades. It's, it's Hades. Jesus is scary. He is powerful and terrifying. But but he's outstretched his hand to John and says, "Look, stop being afraid. Uh, I'm I'm the one. I'm the one. The first and the last. I'm the one. That's the eternal one. I'm the living one. I'm the one who is dead, and, and now I'm alive. Uh, he, he's outstretched his hand to us as well. Stop being afraid is what he told John. There's uh, there's no need for fear from John, even though what John has seen is just utterly terrifying. Why in the world wouldn't John be afraid? I mean, how could John look upon this image of the Son of Man and, and have anything but fear? Uh, because Jesus describes himself as the one who who paved the way for John 
and for us to come into his presence. Here on the lips of Jesus himself, he quotes those Isaiah passages we saw in the first part of Revelation. I'm the first and the last. That's where Yahweh himself says, I am the first and the last. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is truly God, a very God. He's the first and the last. But but there's even more than that. The Son of Man, he says, he says, I'm the living one. I'm the one that's alive. He is the eternal God. You remember we talked about the burning bush where God spoke to Moses and he said, my name is, is Yahweh. It's, uh, I am who I am. Am being. I am the one being. In Greek, it's ego ami haon. I am the one being. Jesus is the living one, the eternal God, the first and the last. But but even more than this, John can stop being afraid because Jesus was dead and is now alive forevermore. He gave himself so that John and us and we don't have to stand in fear before before his presence the the greek phrase where it says i I live forevermore is the same thing yahweh says of himself in deuteronomy 32 40 And, and, and he says he says stop being afraid because i have the keys i have the keys to death and and to hades now now many people have taken this verse as a proof text showing that jesus died and went to hell in order to wrestle the keys away from uh satan Uh, that's just stupidity uh the text doesn't say that at all uh jesus said father into your hands i commit my spirit when he died he says he says right here i have the keys to death and to hades hades is a hades is a general term for the realm of the dead throughout scripture um it it doesn't speak of it, it speaks of just being dead the place of the dead in greek thought uh hades started as you know god of the underworld or uh, it was a person and his realm was called the house of hades and later it just became known as as hades so th- this is this is uh it's not the the greek idea it's just the word was used for the realm of the dead it's not the same idea as the the hell the lake of fire that that word is gehenna in scripture and we'll see that in revelation you better believe it um one one preacher i heard uh i've heard uh, he expressed it this way hades is the house uh where the dead are held uh where the dead live and death is the doorway to get into the house and so jesus what he's what he's talking about here is he went into the realm of the dead he died is what he's saying he went into the realm of the dead through the door of death but death and Hades could not hold him. Death could not keep him dead. Death could not overcome him. He exited death. He he triumphed over death. Now now he is Lord of death and of Hades and of hell. He he what he is telling John is that he is the authority now over death. He has the keys to the door. That means that it's mine. I own it. You know, you give you give you give Give me the keys to my house is mine. I, I say who comes and goes. John doesn't have to be afraid. He doesn't have to fear death. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, John 14 says, because I live, you will also live. He has the key. He is the Lord over death. He is the Lord over the realm of death. Death no longer has sway, no longer has sting, no longer has victory because he entered into death and trampled over death coming out back to life. He has the key to give life to those who trust him. There's no need to fear anything. The worst thing that happen to you is you die. Death holds nothing but joy and anticipation for those who have who have this powerful Lord King as their advocate and savior. And finally, last verse, we're, we're finishing up. 
John's commission as a prophet is restated, and then Jesus gives him the interpretation of what he's seen. He says, verse 19 says, Therefore write these things which you've seen, the things that are, the things that will take place after these things. And verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, seven stars are seven messengers of the churches. Now, there's disagreement. Many people uh, disagree about who they actually are. Are they angels, heavenly beings who guard the, the churches? Or are they human leaders of the churches, you know, pastors, if you will, messengers? Uh, some say they're you know, personifications of the spirit or the character of the churches. Yeah. To be honest, I don't think it matters Uh, whether they are divine messengers or human messengers, whether they are angels or messengers who watch uh, care over the churches or the, you know, the human leaders of the churches. The message is the same. They are in the hand of Christ. That's what he says. He holds the seven stars in his hand. They are in the the hand of Christ and they are under his authority and his leadership. Nothing goes on with those lampstands. Nothing goes on with those churches that Christ himself does not allow or ordain for purpose. Uh, If you just want my view for the sake of my view, uh, I I want to see them as human leaders of the churches. Uh, The reason being because the letters uh, of chapters two and three are specifically addressed to the angel of each church as if they were going to be read to the church you know so i see that as uh, that's how that's how i i take it but you know fair disclosure i'll also say that many people take them at, as heavenly beings because in the visionary portion of revelation there are over 60 or so references to angels you know angelos and and they pretty much all refer to heavenly messengers you know there's no other use in revelation of human messengers so you take it for what you want it could be it could be angelic uh ministers over the churches or it could be human ministers there's smart people on both sides Ultimately, I don't think it matters. Um, Later on in the revelation, an angel, a real angel, will tell John, I am a fellow servant of you and your brothers in chapter 19, uh, verse 10. So that's why a lot of people take the word to mean an angelic messenger here that protects the churches because he says, I'm a servant of you and your brothers. Uh, So I don't have no problem with that. Uh, So what we got here in total, we've seen John's commissioning as a prophet. We've seen the one who's commissioned him to write. We saw what John saw. John uses Daniel extensively through this section. He shows the Daniel son of man who has dominion kingdom. Uh, That that is none other than Jesus. Daniel's prophecies are being fulfilled and the fulfillment has begun at the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, The churches will be faced as we go into the next chapters with many different trials. Uh, The letters are going to tell us that the whole world itself looks like it is coming against them and they are suffering. They suffer greater than you and I will probably ever know. But what we will see through the book is that God is in control. Jesus is on the throne. The lamb is on the throne and he has been given dominion. He is the son of man that received the kingdom from the ancient of days. Even in the midst of trial persecution, Jesus has not lost control. He's moving all things for the good of those who love him. He will be victorious. Uh, But also make no mistake, he is already victorious.